Hello, friends. I'm Matt Baum, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. If you've been listening so far, every week you've heard me read one chapter of my book, Defining Marriage: Voices from a Forty-Year Labor of Love. You can hear the entire audiobook complete and unabridged by listening to the first eighteen episodes of this podcast, or you can pop over to Amazon and get Defining Marriage as an ebook, paperback, and audiobook. For the last few episodes, I've been revisiting the marriage work that I did as a reporter and an activist over the last decade, and this week we'll be talking about Eight, the play, dramatic interpretation of the Prop Eight trial. I work behind the scenes on mounting these star-studded premieres in New York and L.A., and here to talk about it with me this week is the delightful James. Delightful. Delightful. You're almost as delightful as the Dove Bar you just made me eat. Well, you know, you deserved a treat. It is Super Bowl Sunday at it the is. time of this recording. It is, and I won. Did That's you? my reward. You uh, you were at a Super Bowl party. I was, and weirdly, there was one guy cheering. There's like, what was there's was room... he cheering for Beyonce? Yeah. No, the actual football. It was a room full of homosexuals, and uh, there was one guy who actually knew what was happening in the game, so that was very impressive. I'm not one of those people who's like, ugh, sports. Um, it's just not for me, but uh, it doesn't bother me that other people like it, and I think it's really neat when they actually know what's happening so you didn't know what was happening no no i knew they were wearing tight tights that's true it's like the uh the bolshevik ballet i don't know <laughs> the bolshevik ballet yes wasn't there a famous russian ballet troupe uh the bolshoi there you go not bolshevik <laughs> bolshevik's a different russian phenomenon it is it is although it is very confusing what they've done they, they someone should have spoken to them about it shame on them uh did you watch the halftime show isn't that the thing the gays all love yeah yeah it was very nice um at one point the guy who looks like macklemore but isn't from coldplay uh somebody patted him on the face with a rainbow flag so now he's gay i guess uh, there was like a big crowd of cheering children and one of them had a rainbow flag and they like waved in his face and everyone in the party I was at was like, yay. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating that that's what the, that's the noise they made. There was also a tiny dog at the party. So, you know, it was pretty gay. I have to apologize too, by the way, to listeners. I am clearly just getting over a sore throat. So, uh, I sound a little Kathleen Turner tonight. Well, we won't speculate as to the origins of your sore throat, uh, but riddle me this. Were there any good Super Bowl commercials? That's another thing the gays love. Oh, uh, you know, I didn't actually see too many of the commercials either because I just was not good at paying attention. Um, I was having a conversation about how to succeed in business without trying, uh, which... The show or just uh, like, were you there with Stephen Covey? <laughs> I'm glad that you know the name of a business person because I was trying to think of one and I'm but like... Dale Carnegie? Dale Carnegie, sure. We, you know, Dale Carnegie, the ghost of Dale Carnegie. Was I could the Super see Bowl party. during the Super Bowl, you and the the ghost of Dale Carnegie slipping away to discuss gypsum concerns. <laughs> yes, that's my drag name. Gypsum concerns? Yes. Gypsum Rosalie? Gypsum Rosalie. Yeah, it's a geological theme drag show. The only thing I know that happened during the Super Bowl was that the X-Men Apocalypse trailer came out, mm-hmm. which led me to look at Ivan Ooze, and then you looked up Ivan Ooze, who was the villain from the Power Rangers movie. Yeah, the and one you with just... the big purple face. Correct. Uh, I believe Amy Jo Johnson calls him Raisinhead at one point. Oh. But anyway, you made a shocking discovery about Ivan Ooze. Yeah, so it's this, like, absurd uh, purple prosthetic makeup character who's really chewing the scenery. Uh, he's got, like, blobs stuck to his face. And, and he's flirting with Rita Repulsa. And he's doing, like, the big, wide-eyed evil villain cackles and things. Uh, turns out it's the same actor who played Belloc, the main villain in Temple of Doom. Nope. Nope. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Uh, he's the one who tells Indiana Jones that there is nothing he can possess that he cannot take away from him. And then a fly crawls into his mouth. Does it? Yeah. You've never noticed 
notice that? In the movie, the actor is talking. A fly crawls in his mouth as he's delivering that line. And that's what turned him into Ivan Ooze. <laughs> Apparently. It was it's a the origin fly. story. Yeah. And he, he also played Baxter Finley. Do you mean Baxter Stockman? Yes. Who's Baxter Finley? Baxter Finley is my barber. <laughs> no, it isn't. Zach is your barber. Zach's my barber now, but Baxter Finley was my barber when we lived in Los Angeles. And he was also a fly? And he was also a fly. Uh, why was Six Afraid of Seven? You cannot set me up for that joke, because you know my answer to that. <laughs> what is your answer? Because Seven <laughs> Nine. <laughs> it's not funny I didn't, for a podcast. I didn't know that was the answer to your joke. Yes! Nope. All right, try again. Set me up again. Why was Six Afraid of Seven? Because Seven is very mean. <laughs> That's I'm sorry, true. is that not what you were what you were expecting? Well, I thought you were going to say that it's because Seven ate the play. <laughs> yes. Is that what we're here to talk about today? We're here to talk about Ate the Play, not Ivan Ooze, unless he was one of the many celebrities who appeared in it. It was star-studded. Uh, it featured Baxter Finley. Uh, <laughs> sure. Meredith Baxter Burney. My barber. Yep. Amy uh, Jo Johnson. <laughs> and, uh, and a fly. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, it is an awkward name, isn't it? So, Ate the Play. It, 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 it starred Cookie Monster. <laughs> it just sounds like a joke. But it's about Proposition 8. Listen- Which was, for people who uh, maybe didn't live in California, what was Proposition 8? Proposition 8 was the thing that stopped gay marriage for a little while in California. For a couple of years. We had gay marriage for a summer. Then Proposition 8 was a thing that people voted for, and it passed, and it stopped the gays from getting married. And then a few years went by, and Afer's lawsuit got it taken away, so the gays could get married again. Hooray. Uh, And of course, I just realized that if anyone's listening to this show sequentially, as you should... Uh, and you don't know what Prop 8 is, uh, you Boy, you are, really have yeah, you're suffering action. some serious brain damage, and uh, I hope you get treatment from Baxter Finley. Yeah, our thoughts are with you. So why did Ate the Play happen? Originally, and there's there's a lot of convolutions and twists and turns to this, so I'm going to make it as short as possible. Uh, they were going to televise the Prop 8 trial, and then the Prop 8 people, the anti-gay activists, were like, no, no, we don't want it to be televised. Uh, and they won. The, the, the trial was videotaped, uh, but the tapes are sealed and they still are to this day and will be for a few more years. So in an effort to present to the world uh, as sort of a, a public education thing, a couple of people involved in the pro-gay marriage side were like, let's put on a show and show people what happened at trial. Because there were a lot of really telling incidents during the trial uh, that were relevant and, and could help change people's minds. So it was like uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney getting together and being like, come on, gang, let's put on a show. There were actually a couple different versions of um, people mounting projects to show the world what happened at trial because the transcripts were released. So essentially everyone had a script. Uh, So there were some uh, folks who... Uh, put on, like, literally, like, the next day, were, they got some actors together in L.A. and were doing dramatic readings uh, of the whole thing. Um, so you could watch the court proceedings as portrayed by actors. Uh, there was also this extremely strange thing that Courage Campaign, which is a California um, progressive activism group, did, uh, where they got a mix of celebrities and regular people to just do readings from the transcript, just brief ones, just out in public on the street. So some of them are just regular folks. And then there's one with, like, it's Alan Cumming and Ellen Green doing a reading from the trial. It's so strange. I'd watch them in anything. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic and marvelous. But uh, also, like, why are they doing this? They're just, like, standing in a park in Los Angeles and, and reading from the trial. There was also a musical, wasn't there? Yeah, Mark Shaman, uh, famous musical theater guy who did, among many other things, uh, a lot of the music for Smash, uh, d- did a Prop 8 musical. It's, it's brief and stars a whole bunch of people. Uh, and it's a really great comical look at how uh, Prop 8 was passed. Uh, it's definitely the most fun interpretation of, of the whole sequence of events. 
So the version that uh, you were involved with was not fun. It was written by one Dustin Lance Black, is that correct? That is correct. And there are some fun bits to it. Um, it's mostly serious. And uh, it's it kind of weaves back and forth uh, between the actual stuff that happened at trial. So a lot of it is just trial transcripts. Um, but a lot more of it is based on interviews that he did with people who were involved and dramatic stuff that was happening kind of away back away from the courtroom. So you get to, to know people a little bit better uh, when they're not on the stand or sitting in court. So, for example, on the witness stand, there's uh, this character who's actually, you know, everyone's based on a real person. So there's this character, in air quotes, uh, Ryan Kendall, um, who's played uh, by um, Chris Colfer in one version and by Rory O'Malley in another version. Uh, But that was a real guy, and it's a real guy that I know. Ryan Kendall was one of the witnesses. Uh, He's a friend. Uh, He lives in Denver, and he's a really great guy. He was a a witness at the trial, and uh, it was... Super strange for him uh, when this play was actually happening to be like, oh, now I'm being, I'm just some person and now I'm being played by big time Broadway celebrities and, and TV stars. Well, for the benefit of those who don't know, um, who is Ryan Kendall? Uh, so Ryan Kendall was one of the witnesses in the Prop 8 trial. He was forced into ex-gay therapy, you know, therapy in, in scare quotes, uh, by his parents uh, with this guy, Joseph Nicolosi, who's a practitioner of this belief that, you know, if we psychologically abuse people, they'll uh, turn straight. <clears throat> so he was there on the witness stand to talk about how uh, being gay is a fundamental aspect of his of who he is as a person. It's not something that you can change. And his function in the trial was was to establish that uh, laws that discriminate against LGBTs are discriminated against uh, people on a basis that is as fundamental as many other protected bases, such as uh, gender or ethnicity or national origin or whatever, things that people should not be expected to change under any circumstance. So that was his function at the trial. But offstage, he is this lovely man who's been through so much uh, difficulty and has so much inner strength. Um, He had this a uh, very difficult time uh, in his life when his parents were trying to force him to be a straight person. Uh, and so he had to emancipate himself from his parents. And uh, he was homeless. And it was very difficult for him to see any future for himself uh, until he mustered this inner strength to uh, get a GD and turn his life around and know he's going to law school. And he's just a, a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, and so I hung out with him in New York when the play was premiering there. And uh, I mean, just imagine the bewilderment that any person would feel if they like are sitting in a state in a, in a in a Broadway audience, and out on stage walks a star who's like, "Yes, yes, I am, I am you." So it was it was a it was a strange time for a lot of people. It's like that episode of Avatar. I want to say it took place on Fire Island, but I know that's not the name of it. No, no, it was when they were in the Fire Nation, though, wasn't it? It was in the Fire Nation. Yeah. It was some island in the Fire Nation where they saw a play about themselves. Yeah, the, the heroes of this of this cartoon. Uh, are uh, the heroes of this TV show uh, that is animated uh, have reached like the culmination of their journey. And there's one like kind of peaceful episode right before the big final battle where they sneak into a show and they see themselves portrayed like their their adventures portrayed by actors. And they're like, that's not how it happened. Uh, and for Ryan, it was you know, it was mostly, oh, that that is how it happened. And which actor was portraying him in the L.A. version? It was Chris Colfer, who's uh, the star of uh, TV's Glee. He was the nervous, nervous little gay kid. And uh, in the L.A., uh, in the New York version, it was uh, Rory O'Malley, who's not quite so much a household name, but uh, folks may know him from... Um, <laughs> Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon, for of sure. Course. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the gay elder in that. Uh, the first time I ever saw him was he's in uh, Dreamgirls, uh, when they, they've got the song, I Got Me a Cadillac, and that's 
kind of taken away from the heroes and, and uh, re-recorded with uh, white performers who do not have a lot of character. So he's the one who sings it like, I got me a Cadillac, Cadillac, Cadillac. And it's like supposed to be like, haha, look at how white people have ruined the song. Well, uh, he's who you get when you need the whitest white guy who could white. He is he is the whitest white who ever whited. Yeah. yeah. And he is also... Which is why he's the perfect Mormon. Yes, exactly. Uh, he's also a lovely man. He is. Uh, he was heavily involved in, in making Prop 8, uh, in making the, 8 the play happen. Uh, and he's another person that I kind of have known through the activism work and, and through the work on this play. Am I mistaken that uh, in one of the chapters of the book, he and someone else from Broadway started an organization that was involved in marriage equality in New York? That's absolutely right. It was he and Jenny Canalos. Uh, they were doing organizing for Barack Obama in Ohio, where Rory is from. Jenny was so energized by that that she was like, we got to do more. we got to do something about Prop 8, even though we're on the other side of the country. Um, th- th- this is in my book, Defining Marriage. Uh, and so they go to some meetings in New York, and they can't really they're frustrated by the uh, institutionalized slowness to move on on this and so along with uh, Gavin Creel they start this organization Broadway Impact where they're like we're going to organize marches and we're going to do letter writing campaigns and we're going to send postcards uh, and so they did a lot of work and part of their work was organizing these readings uh, or organizing these productions of Eight the Play and and making it a thing that uh, this play could be performed all over the country. So there were two performances of Eight the Play right? One in New York and one in Los Angeles? There have been hundreds of productions but there have been two really really big ones. Were those the first two that happened? Uh, one was the very first. The New York one was the very first. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a little while later, the L.A. one was the West Coast premiere. Okay. And you were involved in both the New York and the L.A. That's correct. productions. So uh, what was it like uh, going to New York for that first production? Gee whiz, it was very, very exciting. So um, before the actual show happened, there was a lot of lead up to it and a lot of production. I worked on the the playbill for it, which is one of the weirdest experiences of my life is, you know, I'm like sitting there at my desk uh, working in InDesign to put together one of those playbills that is like the playbill. It's the, yeah. Yeah. With the, the actual yellow playbill. thing at the top. And I've been working on programs for plays since middle school when I was putting together, you know, like, Lil Abner, Lil Abner playbills to hand out to people's parents in the audience. And here I am doing one that's going to be handed out at the Eugene O'Neill Theater. And I'm like, what is my life? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of like lead up to it and um, agitation about making sure everyone's, you know, names are spelled right in the playbill. There was a concern about um, making sure everyone's photos up to date. And uh, these plays functioned in, in part as fundraisers for the trial. So a big part of it was recognizing donors and, and getting the names of donors in the playbill. So, I mean, if you look through these things, if you flip through them, there's like, you know, messages in the back like, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your million dollars. I worked on that. Uh, the New York trip was it was kind of magical to walk into the Eugene O'Neill Theater where they were doing the Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon, uh, I don't know the terminology, they kind of stepped back. It's not that the theater was dark, but they weren't doing that show for a night and instead were doing eight, uh, this show that, that we were mounting. Uh, the, very, the night before uh, the eight premiere, I went to see Book of Mormon and uh, it was with um, standing room tickets. So you had to like wait in the line and, you know, see if, if you'd, you'd luck out and, and win tickets to this thing. And we were able to stand in the back and watch from the very back of the theater. I was standing next to Cleve Jones, uh, who's the in- inventor of the AIDS quilt and f- close friend of Harvey Milk's. I didn't really know Cleve at the time, um, and so I was like very starstruck to be standing next to him, and also very tense that the there are many jokes about AIDS in the Book of Mormon, and I was like, oh boy, is this going to be really offensive to Cleve? And he had a blast. 
So uh, it was it was a lovely time all around for everybody. I saw Borat sitting right in front of George Lucas, <laughs> and there are so many jokes where I was not sure if it was okay to laugh uh, because I did not want to uh, give him the impression that I thought certain things were funny, even though some of them were really funny. Yeah. yeah. Did he laugh? We don't have to talk about George. <laughs> no. I'm sure he would prefer it that way. So what was it like the day of the show? Day of the show, everybody woke up crazy early. There was already a huge line forming out front because there were a ton of famous people in this show. Uh, So a lot of people were just, you know, standing in line hoping to get tickets. Um, And Gavin Creel, who, bless his heart, is just the nicest man. He's, you know, another Broadway star. He helped start Broadway Impact. He was in Hair and, um, you know, he was a recording artist as well. Uh, he uh, was going to be in the show and was one of the big organizers and made it possible. And it's like, I don't know, 6 a.m. And he starts walking the line and just saying hello to everybody and thank you for coming. Uh, at one point, there's this young woman who's like shivering. And so he's like, oh, do you need coffee? Let me get you coffee. And so he literally runs down the block to get her coffee and comes back and brings her coffee and donuts. He brought donuts for the whole line. He's just the nicest guy imaginable. So I was there with him just helping out and taking pictures. And my role here was, uh, it was kind of a publicity role so making sure that things were documented properly and that no one would forget this magical day gavin krill at the time he was starring in hair that's that correct yeah okay um and he's done you know he's gone on to do a lot of great work we saw him in la he was in book of mormon he took the 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 lead oh that's uh, right traveling yeah traveling Mm -hmm. cast really nice guy also always wear sensible shoes (laughs) i mean that's (laughs) such a weird like i'm not saying that like and that's the nicest thing i can say about him uh but he always like he always wears comfortable shoes and like at the premiere uh i'm I'm kind of the same way and so he's like hey how's it going how are you and he looked down at my shoes and saw that i was wearing sneakers to like a broadway premiere and he's like yeah good for you Uh, so yeah, that was that was in the morning, and then you weren't wearing Lubitus or Lubi <laughs> Tubies. I don't. I see this word sometimes on Facebook, like the the Lubus Tubus. Oh, I love you so and much. I, I don't. But isn't that what you're supposed to be wearing yes, these days? Yes, we're all the Lubitus. We're all supposed to be wearing Lubitubies. Yeah, <laughs> they've got. But actually, the at the Super Bowl, are uh, they like Garanimal shoes? Like they they have little things that show you what they match with. Oh. Like my Luby tubies? Yes, yes. Oh my god. A line of children's shoes, a, ch- a line of children's Louboutin shoes with, called Luby tubies that have animals on them. Uh, so it's Louboutin. Yeah. And that is different from Louis Vuitton. Yes. Okay. So one is a bag and one is a shoe, and you don't want to confuse the two? Yes. Okay. I guess you you could confuse them if you really. You could wear bags to. on your feet and shoes on your hands. Yeah, put your keys in your shoes. Why not? It's opposite day. <laughs> sure, sure. It's crazy. You can be the hand walking queer from Beaches. There's a hand walking queer in Beaches. Have you seen Beaches? I've seen the beginning. I saw it up to the Laurie Anderson part. It's not actually Laurie Anderson. I, I know what you mean, but you oh, know it, what I mean. Oh, industry. Yes. 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 Um, you know, I once had dinner with Laurie Anderson. Uh, I once showed her a video game I made. <laughs> are, are we playing who's more connected to Laurie Anderson? It's me. Who was in the New York production of Ate the Play? Oh my god, it was such an amazing cast, and such a, like, really kind of cast of, like, people you would never expect to see together. So, John Lithgow was the one who probably had me the most starstruck because um, of Third Rock from the Sun, which is not classy, but sure, okay. Not uh, Garp? Or Garp, or, you know, he hadn't been I don't think he'd been on uh, 30 Rock yet. He's but he the- was in Harry and the Hendersons he at that point. Harry- oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, oh, Morgan Freeman, of course, Bradley Whitford, uh, Christine Lottie, Ellen Barkin. Oh, my God. Uh, Matt Bomer and Cheyenne Jackson, who is even 
taller in person than any other human alive. Now, is this before he had his sexy breakdown and like got the mustache and the tattoos oh, and was yes. showing everyone his dick? Yes, it is. It is before that. Uh, so he uh, didn't get to see anything. He was. It was sensible Cheyenne. Oh, um, that's too bad. You should have gotten the the wild uh, tornado. Yeah. No, he was very. I think I like at that point he'd been on Glee, and I can't remember if he'd been on Thirty Rock at that point. But he is like he, a man chiseled out of bronze. He is. Uh, I guess you don't chisel bronze, but, but but he is. He's that unique. He's dented and chipped. <laughs> yes. It's like he's falling down a flight of stairs. <laughs> uh, you know, he's just like, he's so statuesque. Like, he's one of those people who, like, you see him up close and you're like, that's not real. But anyway, yeah, amazing cast. And, like, these people were starting to assemble for the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And, like, you just look out. I was standing there in the Eugene O'Neill Theater and standing on stage to take pictures of everybody. And I'm like, I am photographing some of the most talented people in the world here. So, okay. And also some who's that's. But what? Uh, <laughs> no. There are a few people. I mean, like, one of the nice things about the show is that uh, there are a few uh, young people in it. Um, so people who are teenagers who are just getting getting into the world of acting. And so it was really exciting to see how excited they were. These Okay, I thought you were like throwing shade at Christine Lottie. <laughs> no, no, who am I? You're like, and a who's who of who's that? Yeah, can you imagine if I'm like, I'm better than Christine Lottie? Uh, no, 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 that like, there are these, you know, teenage actors who are like, suddenly they're in a show with Ellen Barkin and it's like, okay, here you go, kid. Uh, I mean, what a thrill. Uh, and they clearly knew that this was a big this was a big thing for them. And everyone was so nice and everyone was so happy. And then as as night fell, uh, everyone was gathering together across the street to uh prepare for the for the big premiere. Yes, your long day's journey into night. Uh, yes, uh, we were recording a little bit of promotional stuff. Like as as I said, uh, my role there was to do um, a communication, so to make sure that that everyone, the world was aware of what was happening. Uh, so we we're recording some promotional stuff with people, and uh, I got to speak briefly to some of the cast. And you know, it was a thrill to. We were recording it. It was staging stuff. Um, we were doing some of the recording in hotel rooms because there was a hotel across the street that we had booked up so that we would have space to do some work. And so we've got all these lights and microphones set up to record things. And John Lithgow comes into the room and he's like, looks like you're shooting a porn in here. Because it was literally a hotel room with a bed and lights shining at it and and things like that. Did you say, off with your pants? (laughs) Yes, yes. I said, off with your pants to John Lithgow. You missed an opportunity if you didn't. I'll never have that chance again. Probably. Probably not. Who knows? It's possible. Yeah, Larry Kramer came through at one point just to use the bathroom. Well, one of your objectives that night was to record people doing like little testimonials, right? Yeah, some messages from the cast. Uh, So recording some some promotional video stuff because we had this like incredible concentration of celebrities there. So, and among those celebrities, there was Voice of God Morgan Freeman. That's true. I had the distinction of uh, asking him into a hotel room. Uh, he was standing in sort of a common area with all the other famous people, uh, and then you know let him let him back into a hotel room and asked him to uh, read this uh, statement and uh, you, have, you know support for for the marriage equality work. And so he reads through it, and I was like, okay, that was great, perfect. Uh, could you read it through one more time just for safety? And so he kind of raises his eyebrow at me and professionally reads through it one more time. Uh, and I was like, that was great. Uh, are you happy with that delivery? And he goes, I was happy with it the first time. And so I think he was maybe a little annoyed that I asked him to do it twice. I mean, who am I to tell Morgan Freeman, like, oh, let's, let's, let's give it another shot. Whatever. He's, it's just one in a long line of uh, famous and important people that I have annoyed. What other famous people have you annoyed? 
there was a period where I was working at the Jim Henson Company, and uh, the men's room was out of order, so I went into the women's room, which is single-user. I look at this is how defensive I'm getting about the story already. It's a single-user bathroom. And so I came out, and there's like one of the top development executives for Jim Henson Television standing there looking at me with irritation. She goes, that was the women's room. And thinking on my toes, I say, gender is a social construct. And she replies, no, it isn't. And uh, we left at that because I wasn't about to get into that conversation with uh, someone who is approximately a dozen levels of management above me. You had similar bathroom trouble at Industrial Light and Magic, didn't you? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yes. Uh, this has plagued me my whole life. I've... You're always using the women's room. Well, it's never my fault. I went into the men's room and there was a guy in there cleaning it. And I was like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. And he's like, it's okay. It's okay. And he reaches across and he like pushes open the door to the women's room. And he's like, here you go. And I, I was like, okay, thanks. And I thought he was going to put like a sign on there that said out of service or something. So I'm using the women's room because he told me to. And I'm in a stall and two women come in and I'm frozen in fear. Like, oh my God, I'm going to get caught as the bathroom pervert in the women's room. What am I going to do? Uh, and like, I had this like moment of like adrenaline where I was like, okay, maybe if I like charge out of the stall and accuse them of being in the wrong bathroom and I'm like, don't you know it flips over at 6 p.m. They beca- It becomes the men's room after 6 p.m. And fortunately, uh, one of them went into a stall and the other grew tired of waiting for me to emerge from the other stall and I was able to just flee in terror from this bathroom without ever getting caught. And this is why we need to push for gender-inclusive bathroom laws, right? But one reason, yeah, so that I... The primary s- reason is to, is, is to accommodate you. Yes, yeah, so I no longer have to explain to executives that gender is a social construct. You know what else is a social construct? What? Los Angeles, and not a great one, mm. but uh, they also did a performance of Ate the Play there, right? Yeah, they did it at the, the Wilshire Ebell Theater, which is a beautiful former church uh, that was turned into a, into a lovely theater. Uh, gorgeous, gorgeous place in the middle of a terrible, terrible neighborhood. And it's not a terrible neighborhood. It's, you know, one of those L.A. neighborhoods where everything's a freeway. So was there anything that you learned from the New York performance that uh, informed you to do the L.A. performance differently? Uh, yeah, back off the celebrities and stop bugging them. <laughs> that was a big one. I uh, did not, uh, I had an opportunity to bother uh, uh, Brad Pitt and George Clooney and did not. Uh, we were doing the same thing, recording little promotional things with them. And uh, I arranged for their assistance to speak to them. Uh, but but the uh, assistants uh, were not present for some of the other celebrities. So I did get a, a brief chance to talk to Martin Sheen, which was quite a thrill. Uh, he, too, is uh, even lovelier in person uh, than you can possibly imagine. Than he was in Basic Instinct? Uh, oh, well, I was going to say the West Wing, but sure. He's also the elusive man in the Mass Effect series. Oh, that's right. Yes, of course. You're right. You're right. Yes, Sitting the... there gazing out at the at the sun or uh, something? At, at some kind of heavenly body. Sure. Maybe mm. Sharon Stone. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so at one point, you know, I have to uh, approach these celebrities to ask them to read a little message into a camera. And, uh, you know, of course, they're all volunteering their time. Nobody's getting paid for, for this thing. It's a big fundraiser that all the celebrities are, are donating their time to. And so I approach Martin Sheen and I'm like, oh, do you have a, a moment to record this thing? And he's like, well, I suppose, but I'm going to have to double my rate. And then, like, bursts out into laughter. And it's just like a charming avuncular man. I also, oh my god, one of the greatest thrills of my life, uh, got to speak to uh, George Takei. Um, oh. Did you discuss transit? Of course. Ah, okay. Yes, yes. We're walking to this little area where we had a camera set up, and uh, I said, uh, I'd like to thank you for all your work making the LA subway possible. Which is probably not a thing he hears very often. Uh, but little known fact, George Takei, we have him to thank for uh, the Los Angeles 
subway system. He was on the, uh, I can't remember if it was a commission or board or subcommittee or whatever it was, but he was uh, on a, in government service and uh, was one of those people who meets once a month or once a week to talk about, uh, go through agendas and talk about how money's getting allocated for government things. And uh, there was a crucial vote for the L.A. subway, and he had to leave rehearsal for something so they could cast the tie-breaking vote. Uh, and so it's thanks to Sulu that we've got uh, we've got a subway in Los Angeles that, that even actually goes to some places now. One of the nice things about nobody riding it is that it's very clean. Yeah, it is a extremely functional subway. Yeah, if you bit- want to go from Burbank to the Staples Center and that's it, it's got you covered. Yeah, yeah. If you want to go from one parking lot to another parking lot, uh, it's very, very helpful. Anyway, this says this is neither here nor there. Our loathing of Los Angeles. Another wonderful thing that happened with uh, the uh, LA premiere was it was live streamed. The New York one was videotaped, but uh, this one was live streamed on YouTube. It was YouTube's first uh, collaboration to live stream an event uh, with another organization. Did they introduce you to PewDiePie? No, I don't know if PewDiePie was a thing at that point. He might not have. He might have been a child. Yeah. What about uh, speaking of children? What about Tyler Oakley? Uh, he wasn't there either. Oh. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was there. Jamie she, Lee Curtis, she's no PewDiePie. No, she, she, she's better. She is better. What? Yes. She. Did you see the thing recently about her cosplay? Uh, no. Oh my god. She, like, apparently her son is, like, really into, um, I can't remember if it's Tekken or Street Fighter. He's into some fighting game. Okay. And so the whole family went to some big fighting game championship so her son could play. Christopher Guest was dressed up in cosplay, and she was dressed up as Vega from from Street Fighter, right? That's the one? The one with the mask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, oh my god, how awesome is that? Uh, She's another one who's just lovely. She didn't bring any activity, though. Oh, her yogurt? To share. To the fighting game? tournament or to eat the play (laughs) both she's just like i envision her just like spooning it into her mouth at all times like she's always got like a trunk full of it like active cultures for everyone yes she's actually fermenting it in the boot of her car (laughs) yeah and and rob reiner directed both of the shows uh tv's meathead i was always terrified that every time i spoke to him i would call him meathead by accident either that or carl reiner by accident which i never actually did so few uh because all of my cultural references are from the 1940s and 50s uh which predates his uh, his television appearances uh so anyway uh he's he was just tremendously funny he played um blankenhorn the part of um uh, one of the well the part that's a real person yes yes once again it's a real person who is portrayed by actors on stage who unfortunately had really bumbling, funny testimony un- uh, unintentionally. Blankenhorn on on trial, he was called as a witness, and uh, he was asked a yes or no question, and would only give these long, convoluted answers. Uh, and so there's this big fight, and Rob Reiner is playing this character, and he's just the funniest. It was played by, uh, the same character was played, character, person, was played by John C. Riley in the um, L.A. version. Uh, so both two uh, very talented actors at playing the, the hapless, uh, hapless loser in, in this case. Blankenhorn is not a bad guy. Uh, he found himself kind of stuck in an uncomfortable position. Isn't he an expert on, like, Victorian furniture or something? Yeah. This poor... He, he's, he was quite hapless, I think, because he did a, his dissertation or, or whatever it is. Like, his, his area of study is cabinet makers, uh, 16th century cabinet makers or something like that. But he also uh, got very involved, like, from the beginning of his professional career in studying how... Things that families can do to strengthen... Uh, familial bonds. Valuable work. Valuable, important, 
progressive work. And part of his research was the was into how to strengthen parental relationships uh, and provide stable homes for, for kids. And the focus of that work was on heterosexual families. And so for years, like, I think decades at this point, he had been talking about the importance of strengthening those bonds. And so finally, when the anti-gay marriage people came to him and they're like, we need an expert witness. Are mothers and fathers important or aren't they? Uh, he was kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place because he's like, well, the, all of my work has been about how important mothers and fathers are. So, uh, yeah, that is really important. Um, he hadn't, of course, done any work about uh, the importance of same-sex parents. Uh, that just wasn't his field of expertise. Um, but the anti-gays didn't want him for that. They only wanted him to talk about how important opposite-sex parents are so that they could pull this rhetorical trick that makes it seem like only opposite-sex parents are important. Um, so they really used him for that, and it was a very uncomfortable position for him to be in until finally he kind of cleared the air by being like, look, I support same-sex marriage. I'm all for it. He did this video for the Human Rights Campaign, and uh, not a bad guy, just like wrong place at the wrong time. What is the role of 16th century cabinets in the American family? Very important. That's where you put all your stuff. So you stuff your kids in the closet. Yes, exactly. That's the closet. He was an expert on stuffing your kids into closets. No, he wasn't. That's cruel. Um, he, yeah, I mean, I don't understand why he agreed to be an expert witness in this trial, because it, it seems like he himself knew this wasn't his area of expertise. Yeah, um, I think uh, there there are a couple reasons, a couple ways you could explain that. One is that he might have misunderstood what his role was going to be. He might have thought that this was just an opportunity for him to verify his work into, oh, this is why we do all this this work to, to keep parents intact and to, you know, impress upon them the importance of communication and all these skills that, you know, he's done a lot of work in, in training people to be effective partners and parents. That is really valuable, valid work. Uh, and I don't think he anticipated the way that his work would be used against same-sex parents. Um, because I've seen him speak and I've seen him justify why he found himself in this position. And he felt like he really had no choice. Like, if if he wasn't going to... I mean, obviously he did. But, you know, if they were like, we need you to talk about your work. Do you believe in the work you've been doing or don't you? Uh, well, yeah, of course he did. I mean, that strikes me as a bit naive when the people who are trying to make the case that same-sex parents aren't very good come to you and say that they want you to testify on their behalf. Uh-huh. But, I mean, that's not the world he inhabits. So I guess maybe... He's not an activist. At least sure. not an, an activist in that world. Sure. Also, he was paid. I, but I mean, I'm not <laughs> like saying like he was. he only did it for the money because everyone gets paid. Like expert witnesses get paid. I mean, that's just what the way it works. Fair enough. Um, I, I guess the cynic in me would ask, well, what do these lawyers want? Like, what's mm-hmm. in it for them? They're, they're clearly not here just because they love my work and want to popularize it. Mm-hmm. So what are they trying to get out of my work? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's a, a, a long road to get to, oh, they want to use it to prove that gay couples are bad and every child needs to have a biological mother and father. Mm-hmm. True. But I mean, if you, as as he may have, if you really believe in the integrity of your work, um, you may believe, well, I'm just going to speak the truth and the truth will come out. And my truth is that uh, it's important for uh, opposite sex families to uh, strengthen their relationship skills. Uh, and, and that's what I'll talk about. And uh, if however people want to interpret that uh, is, is up to them. And ultimately, that is what happened, right? I mean, he he wouldn't say, if I recall correctly on the stand, that same-sex couples were inferior or were not valid, just that having a mother and a father is important. Yeah, essentially, he actually uh, made the pro-gay marriage case 
for us. When pressed on the witness stand, he said that America would be more American on the day that we allowed same-sex couples to marry. Uh, you know, under under cross-examination, he said a lot of things that uh, the people who were paying him probably did not actually want him to say. Well, that's pretty delicious. It was, it was. Um, their witnesses were not good. Well, they couldn't find anyone really to testify, right? They found some people who weren't credible, uh, like Blankenhorn on the stand. The, the judge uh, ruled that he was not a credible witness, uh, being a, an expert in cabinets. Uh, there were some, uh, some other people that they called, and then uh, those people refused to testify because... Uh, even though they, they were called to talk about uh, how gay people are inferior and shouldn't be allowed to get married, during depositions, which happens before the trial, where um, lawyers get to talk to witnesses before the trial, uh, the deposition was went so poorly for their side that these witnesses were just like, hey, you know what, never mind, I'm not going to testify. Yeah, and I mean, just going back to the trial for Prop 8 a bit, I know we talked about that uh, in the chapters of the book, but I, I know we don't know this for a fact, but uh, Judge Von Walker, who I think we can probably assume uh, did have some leanings in favor of marriage equality, but was a, a judge acting in a professional capacity. Is it not so that he used this opportunity to get just as much evidence into the record as possible in the case that it goes to the Supreme Court, or even if it didn't, just so there would be a body of evidence of sort of arguments for and against marriage equality, and in part to show sort of the mountain of evidence for and the very spurious, at best, arguments against. That is exactly right. It is now a matter of federal record, and it is binding precedent that uh, things like um, that uh, discrimination against LGBTs is based on animus rather than a legitimate government interest, that fundamentally uh, LGBT identity is something that should be protected. You know, it, it was incredibly valuable to have all this stuff enshrined in a federal case. Um, and, and, you know, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to have a full trial, but he did, uh, in part because, uh, Von Walker is, uh, he's always been a bit of a showman. He always, he likes to have an exciting time in court. Uh, he is not a boring judge. Uh, and so it was, it was lovely that we got him and just fascinating that he himself is gay. And I, I think there will be more stories told about this case, uh, than just ate the play. Uh, I'm looking forward to the story of like Von Walker's experience if that ever gets told. Because, uh, I mean, he himself had a very colorful life. He um, was the judge in a case going way back to, I think it was the 80s. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the 80s. Um, he was the judge who ruled that the Gay Olympics, there was this event called the Gay Olympics, uh, could not be could not call themselves that anymore. And that they owed the actual Olympics money. The the actual Olympics sued them, saying you can't use the word Olympics. Um and Von Walker ruled in favor of the Olympics and against the Gay Olympics. And for a long time, uh, the gays were like, "This guy has it out for us, and this is a this is a bad judge, and uh, he's homophobic." Um, really? So, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's funny because I mean that seems like a pretty cut and dry trademark case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like if I opened the Gay McDonald's, <laughs> I wouldn't expect to, like if if they were to challenge that, that I would win. I think uh, there's this idea that the Olympics is just a phenomenon that happens dating back uh, to ancient Greece. Okay. You know, I, I don't know. If you wanted to have like something that like a product that you were calling the gay toga or something, uh, it may turn out, unfortunately, that toga is copyrighted by uh, Toga Incorporated. But the gay togo, the sandwich restaurant. Yes. Now that, that you could have. Those sandwiches are very obscene. What? G- the, the gay togo sandwiches. It's true. It's a Did lot of banger in the mouth. to go? I've always said... Because Togo's the country. I've always said Togo. It probably is to go, isn't it? Although maybe you do say Togo, because you say Pogo. 
You do. See, Quiznos, there's no ambiguity. Subway, no ambiguity. Togo's, th- that's why it hasn't caught on. Yeah, I, there's there's an underlying philosophy to it that uh, is unresolved. That, and it's really gay. <laughs> Um, and also one of my favorite things about the L.A. performance of Ate the Play happens right at the beginning. Uh, this poor actress, like, her one job was to come out and say, all rise, so that the whole cast could stand up and Brad Pitt could walk out on stage as the judge. And so uh, the, the cast is sitting on stage. This is, like, the first thing that happens in the play. The actress comes out. She stands there. She looks around. Nothing happens. She doesn't say anything. And then from off stage, you hear Rob Reiner go... Say all rise. <laughs> and she says, all rise. <laughs> so you can see that. If you find Ate the Play, the L.A. premiere on YouTube, you can watch it. And you see right at the beginning, she's just standing there. And you hear Rob Reiner shouting at her from offstage, say all rise. It's kind of like the beginning of the Republican debate this week. Oh, my week. God. Yeah, I know. That was amazing. Oh, my they God. They needed a Rob Reiner back there to be like, go, go, go. Just go. Just go. What are you waiting for? Just go. Oh, my God. I would have loved that if Rob Reiner charged out and pushed Ben Carson out onto stage. <laughs> yeah. Um, in case, uh, listeners, in case you didn't see this, the Republican National, uh, the Republican debate happened this weekend, and uh, they screwed up the entrances where, like, candidates couldn't tell whether they were supposed to come out or not, so they're, like, all bunching up, and it was like, I don't know, it was like a bunch of people who can't decide what order to go down a water slide well it's like kids at a like a like a kindergarten christmas pageant it totally was and, and they needed like a handler they needed like a, a teacher there to just g- guide them like if they if they did miss their cue just be like okay honey it's time for you to go yes. yeah yeah a better metaphor for the uh republican uh candidates I, I could not think of than their failure to walk out on stage and wave at people I mean, what do they think? Like, even if Ben Carson hadn't been called, even if he thought it wasn't his turn, what did he think would happen? Like, why not just walk out there? What? Sure. I mean, Hillary took 30 minutes to take a shit, right? Like, she the debates will wait. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, what, what's he going to Like, he's going to walk out there and he's going to be like, get out of here. Get off the stage. <laughs> okay. I mean, that actually would be pretty amazing if he walked out and they're like, it's not your turn. Right. Like, I mean, the worst that would happen is he got to his podium prematurely and presumably the hosts would be professional enough to just cover it yeah like i mean and here's ben carson yes and and uh and dr ben carson <laughs> ladies and gentlemen <laughs> yeah here yeah. he is miss Neuro- america neurosurgeon can't, <laughs> can't figure out what order to walk out on stage look he's probably a great surgeon that uh, there, there's i'm not going to impugn his medical credentials i heard he left a sponge in someone's brain oh surgeons leave stuff in people all the time yeah i mean that's if, how i if, got that rubber duck in my abdomen <laughs> we shouldn't have had ernie operating on you <laughs> When he he honks that squeaky horn, and I just—it's <laughs> hypnotic. It lulls me. That's that's how he puts his patients to sleep. He has a wonderful bedside manner. His spleen seems secure, but I will check just to make sure. Poke, 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 now poke. Now cut that out. Ah, now Matthew is awake. Ernie. Any, what, what are we doing? What? <laughs> what is this turned into? Gladys the cow is the anesthesiologist. Oh, this is most irregular. That is the worst Gladys the cow. Do your was Gladys that, the cow. That, that was like Maggie Smith doing Gladys the cow. I wish she would. That would be pretty amazing. The Dowager Countess. Okay. All right. Now that we've gotten to our Sesame Street impressions, it probably <laughs> indicates that it's time to, to call it a night. So I can, I can bonk you on the head with the mallet and, and put you to bed. The boogie woogie sheep. Thank you again to everyone for listening to this. My God, why? Anyway, thank you for listening to us. And thank you, Lammies. Please do get in touch and let me know your thoughts and questions on Twitter. I'm at Matt Baum. Uh, You can leave a review on iTunes. 
God knows what you'll have to say, but you can leave a review. And dance myself to sleep. Not only do those reviews make a huge difference, they really brighten up my day. So thank you for the reviews. And uh, my jammies. Don't forget to hop over to Amazon to get Defining Marriage in print or via download. And if you do pick up a copy, it would mean a lot if you could leave an Amazon review with your honest opinion. Uh, and you could check out my other podcast, The Sewers of Paris, that has revealing personal stories about entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. Uh, and until next time, friends, by the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast over. Doing the pigeon. Woo.